0: Hi, this is Panel Beater, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and wellbeing. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Facebook page.
1: Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Doctor Nick.
2: <laughs> yes, hello again, it's Dr Nick here, um, and welcome to Radiotherapy Live, online and podcast. Um, here we are all again in the studio, hugging, kissing each other, celebrating that we can all be together again, and oh, then I woke up. Yes, whether it's back to the future, or the new normal, or whatever you want to call it, the new reality is it's me in one studio, still gazing wistfully at panel Beta in the studio next door. Hi, panel leader. Give me a wave. G'day, Dr Nick. Yep. Just one wave. Stop there, please. We've had enough second waves for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> nice. i see what you did there. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, joining us by phone soon will be radiotherapy regulars, misdiagnosis and prudence, dear... And today we also have a special guest, uh, Lee Torb, is a researcher in all matters of gender and gender identity. And their latest research was published just 48 hours ago, hot off the press here for radiotherapy. Uh, so at this time, when all the health news seems to emerge from bad to worse, Lee has some good news stories for us about trans health. But first, we have some news.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia, Triple R is listener support radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
2: What news could we possibly talk about other than Covid? Um, it's, it's tough, this one, isn't it? Uh, we won't get the figures for the last 24 hours for another hour or two yet, but at least we had that slight. A uh, little hint of good news that the numbers came down a bit. Uh, yesterday, I was, I was having a look at you as it came in, Panel Beta, didn't see a lot of mask wearing on your particular physiognomy.
0: Uh, no, I, I, I do have a mask. In fact, I've got... Uh 50 of them, I I couldn't get a smaller pack than 50, Um, but I've also got a cloth mask, um, and I've got it on my person uh, at the moment, obviously not on my face while Uh, I'm speaking to you at the moment. No, to be a shareholder in a mask manufacturing company. Yeah, yeah, there's, um, you know, my... um, some algorithm on my computer has obviously picked up the situation and, you know, those random ads that you sometimes get on your sidebars and things like that, just full of sales pitches. So let's give a
2: little public health message out there, because I am wearing a mask when I go out now, if I have to go to the supermarket, that sort of thing. Anytime I have to mingle with other people, I'm wearing a mask. And I know there's still a bit of mask scepticism out there, but I think the evidence is pretty clear that we don't know necessarily who's brewing this virus early in the stages so the first couple of days you may feel perfectly well when you don't even know that this virus is brewing and so wearing a mask when you're feeling well but not possibly someone who carries it can protect other people from you and then of course the mask if it's properly worn can protect you from other people Um, but properly worn is a really important point because one of the things we see is when masks aren't fitting properly people are fiddling with them all the time they're putting their hands to their face so a little reminder, if you are wearing a mask, um, you, do, you do need to keep your hands clean and try not to touch it too often. Um, I'm sure when you're out and about, do you, you wear a mask when you go to the supermarket these days, Panel Beta?
0: Yeah, look, um, uh, and pretty much uh, groceries is the only reason I will go out at all. And even, um, uh, even that is, is not much. And I think since the masks became de rigueur, which is just over a week ago, um, I actually have only been out once. So, and on that occasion, that was to pick up the <laughs> pick up the mask and do some groceries. So, a reminder that panel beach has been extraordinarily responsible
2: here. Well done in that social distancing, only going out when you really have to. we, we kind of, I think we. Got a little bit complacent, perhaps, uh, when numbers dropped so low and just seemed like it was okay to all get together and have a bit of a drinks party and stuff. So staying a little bit apart. I was listening to Sharon Lewin, the director of the Doherty Institute uh, on Radio National just earlier this morning, and she broke a little piece of news which I wasn't aware of is that not only are some of these vaccines um, getting past the trial stage, but they are also manufacturing, gearing up to manufacture hundreds of millions of doses of trial vaccines so that if these things are proved to work, they can roll them out much more
0: quickly, which I thought I don't know, you p- panel beat but for a Sunday morning I thought that was pretty good news. I reckon it makes sense and I think it's money well spent. Sure, that there's the potential that it all have to be um, trashed, but um, you know, in the event that it does prove uh, useful to us, then we're ready to roar. So let's stay
2: safe out there. Let's stay distance. Let's keep that hand hygiene. And please, people out there, if you are going out mingling with the crowds in the supermarkets, anywhere where you can't stay socially distanced, even if you can, but you feel that there's any risk to you at all, wear those masks. We're going to talk a little bit more about COVID and other matters to do with the virus and what's been happening out in the community um, when we come back after the break, because we'll be talking to Miss Diagnosis, who's our frontline health worker, and we'll be coming to her just after these messages.
3: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
2: Hopefully, on the line now we have a resident junior doctor, Miss diagnosis. Are You there, Miss Diagnosis?
3: Good morning, Doctor Nick. Can you hear me? I
2: hear you loud and clear, dulcet tones coming through beautifully. Thank you. Um, you're you're still working in the hospital environment. Uh, what's it like at the moment?
3: Yeah, that's right. I'm uh, one of those people that still is uh, physically going to work at the moment, and. Um, I guess one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is it's pretty dire. Um, It's not a a huge amount of fun at the moment. Um, And so I thought maybe I'd just share a bit of my experience of, you know, this sort of second wave and what that's been like.
2: I'm just interested in the idea that uh, the idea of being a frontline health worker is usually supposed to be fun.
3: (laughs) Well, when I say fun, I guess what I'm referring to is all those little bits and pieces around any job that make that job more bearable. And look, everybody is missing out on that at the moment, that sort of water cooler talk, the, you know, the talk around coffee, sitting and having lunch together. But it's one of the things that I've really noticed at the moment has been really missing because we, we just can't do it. That I think a lot of this sort of frontline work, you need really strong debriefing. You need to be able to sit down with people and have a joke and have a laugh at things like lunchtime or at coffee time so that you can make some of the realities of the job more bearable. And now with um, our second wave and further restrictions, it's just become that much harder. All our lunch spaces are being closed. Um, You know, we're not supposed to go for coffee together and we don't go for coffee together. And it can feel, it's interesting because I think some people say, well, you know, in some ways you're lucky that you're still physically going to work, but it can feel really, really isolating because you're behind a mask and a face shield the whole time. So a lot of that incidental debriefing, you don't get to do
2: anymore. I think people really underestimate the value and the role of that. And I remember that very much. It still applies to me in general practice, that we would chat to each other all the time in the corridor when there's something a bit tricky. We go and have a little word with someone and it would make things work a little bit better. Not being able to do that, you're right. It's a huge change, isn't it?
3: It is a huge change. I think the other thing that has been interesting is there's been this addition to the workload um, because we don't have families coming in anymore to visit.
2: So how is that an uh, addition to the workload then?
3: So the addition to the workload with that is that we used to incidentally pop past and see people, and we would be we would meet people's um, grandparents or parents or you know brothers or sisters or relatives, and we could talk to them about what was going on. And at the moment, because they can't come in, they can't have incidental updates from the team around them. And so we're spending a lot of time on the phone trying to call families. And, of course, families want this information. They want to know what's happening. They're anxious as well about their loved ones. But in when we're on a ward round, you can give that information quite succinctly and quite quickly, which when you're trying to call and recall and call back numerous family members and, and I've had incidences where someone's asked me to call the sister to update them and then call the other sister and the other brother and, and the father and all of a sudden you find, find yourself having spent you know two hours on the phone and not actually having done any of your work.
2: So instead of having five members of the family there who you can explain the situation to you've got to make five separate phone calls I can see oh boy that would that would get weary and we we keep hearing about how many healthcare workers are off with this virus have you noticed that staff have been depleted because of it?
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We we are running at sort of a stretched capacity, I think, at baseline in a lot of public health. And to have the, you know, the added pressure of COVID taking a lot of the staff members away. I have colleagues, um, that have been off sick either because they've been tested or they've been notified as close contacts. And, um, you know, even my partner was quarantined for a day before they told him to come back because he was a close contact of someone. So it, you know, even that, you sort of, you're not quite sure what's happening and what's going to happen next with it.
2: It's a lot of uncertainty, isn't it? And people underestimate the other thing is that people are moaning about having to wear a mask to go out to the supermarket. But wearing a mask all the time actually is quite intrusive. What's that experience like for you? Because you have to wear one pretty much all day long, don't you? Yeah,
3: yeah, that's right. So, I mean, I've been wearing a mask at work since about March. That was our hospital policy um, on the high-risk wards. And I happened to be working on those high-risk wards at the time. I
2: hope they've given you a clean one since March. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. You know, we've, <laughs> <laughs> we we do have enough PPE, and that has been great. Um, but I guess the, the experience is that, you know, I also wear glasses, and so and we have a full face shield on. And there have been times when I've been looking on the computer and x-ray, and I'm going, oh, my God, there's a huge mass there. And then you just sort of, you know, move your face shield and you go, oh, no, that just scratches on my <laughs> face shield, or it's fog in my glasses, and... So, you know, that can be uh, sort of funny sometimes, but but the reality is you have this mask on. I wear my mask for eight, nine hours just at work. And then I wear it if I'm at the supermarket or if I'm outside as well. So it can be up to 10 or 12 hours of mask wearing a day, which, you know, does take its toll on you, You sort of feel a little bit more short of breath. And sometimes, you know, it, it gets really frustrating, but I think it is just the reality at the moment. And all of us in the front lines really appreciate when everybody else at home is also trying to do the same thing um, and, you know, keep masks on, that kind of thing, cause it makes our job easier if we have fewer patients being, or fewer people being infected.
2: And, and let's make it positive, if you possibly can, do you get used to wearing a mask for people who haven't done it before and say, oh, I can't possibly do this? If you practice, oh, yeah, do you yeah. get better at it? Oh, yeah, you absolutely
3: get used to Yeah, yeah, you definitely get used to it. And the one thing that I say is that um, I found that I got a lot of irritation behind my ears from wearing the mask. And I ended up getting a mask extender, um, and you can make one out of a piece of metal from Bunnings, and I was talking to um, someone at work who said that there's even a collective of um, people who are 3D printing uh, mask extenders. So if, if the difficulty is the discomfort behind your ears, that can be fixed pretty easily. And if it's your glasses, you can also
2: pinch the nose bridge slightly more tightly and move your glasses a little bit, and that tends to unfog them. And even a piece of tape will help with that, won't it? It will, yeah. yeah. So let's, let's move on because um, you've been doing a little bit of um, research around what's happening out in the community. Um, in the time of COVID, what's happening with people's illicit drug use? Tell us about that. So,
3: so Dr Nick, the reason I wanted to talk about this is I was out doing my um, the socially distant appropriate exercise at the park <laughs> recently with my partner. We are going for a run around the park. And as we were running around the park, we saw this couple trip and fall into one of the um, football nets at the park. And we thought, oh, my goodness, we went over to help them. And they were both tangled in this net with very bloodshot eyes, giggling hysterically, and proceeded to stay there for the next 20 minutes or so while we ran around the park. And it got me thinking, I wonder what's happening with illicit drug use at the moment. Because this couple at uh, 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning were clearly enjoying themselves. So I did a little bit of research and it's really interesting, actually. There's a bit of research that's been done. Everything, you know, at the moment is... Um, we don't have huge clinical trials and things going on to stuff like this at the moment. So this was a piece of research that included 400 young people in sort of inner city area. So it is a different sample. They were relatively well-educated young people, according to the sample size.
2: And, these are, and, and, what, and also they've had to respond to a survey. So they, yes. so they were the,
3: recruited off social media, responding to a survey, happy to talk about illicit drug
2: use. So if you were tangled up in a net in a park somewhere, you're not going to respond.
3: Well, maybe you take it off on the net on Saturday, but you're responding on a Friday night. I'm
2: not sure. (laughs) Anyway, what did they find?
3: So what they found was that actually illicit drug use with substances like MDMA, that's ecstasy, um, ketamine and LSD or acid is actually, if anything, decreasing a little bit at the moment, which makes sense because they are considered more party drugs that people would take you know, with other people at a social setting. And because we're having less of that, people are consuming less of them. And then potentially with my um, N equals one subject matter in the park itself, cannabis has been... Um, the use of cannabis has risen quite a bit at the moment as well because that's more of a at-home party drug um, or at-home drug to take. The, what this research went on to talk about was the risk that we may see in the preceding couple of months if we do end up returning to normal activities in terms of overdose, that people who maybe would be used to taking some of these drugs every weekend or every second weekend suddenly have cut back quite a lot and that we need to be aware that there is the potential for people overdosing.
2: Ah, that's an interesting... I wouldn't have thought of that. So the reduced use now, when it goes back into... Or when we come back out of lockdown, uh, maybe people will take the same level of drug they used to, systems not so used to it, so they might get into trouble.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I thought this was a really, really nice um, bit of information. And, again, this is just with this particular sample size. who tend to be better educated. But there's a lot of um, COVID-safe practices going on around these drug-taking practices as well. So I think a lot of people think, oh, it's, it, you know, sort of these irresponsible young people. But there was a, there was a whole section in the survey on how people had made... Um, the acquisition of drugs more COVID-safe, including things like um, hand-washing before you met your dealer, wearing masks around your dealer, and not sharing bongs and pipes.
0: I think Penalty Petman wants to... Coming yeah, yeah. There's, um, there's, we've got a couple of precedents that we can look at um, in this regard. One of them uh, was um, around 2000, 2001, and there was a massive um, heroin shortage for various reasons, mostly um, war-related. And then there was, around the global financial crisis, there was a massive um, change in people's capacity to purchase, um, obviously from an economic point of view. Um, and one of the big uh, uh, aspects of those stories um, was the rise in impurities, in order to make things cheaper and more accessible. With COVID, we've got the issue of the trafficking, um, especially with closed borders, etc. And so, therefore, the access is changing. And with the access changing, in order to try and keep supply up, the quality is is changing and it's reducing. And so, you were referring to the potential for overdosing a moment of misdiagnosis. Um, And one of the potentials here is that with... Oh, there goes misdiagnosis, I think. Are you there? (laughs) Looks like we lost a Dr Nick. I'll just finish that point. And so one of the risks at the moment is now with increased impurities, um, uh, people um, uh, are are at risk with not knowing what their their baseline uh, dosage is.
2: No, that's it. So, panel B, if there's any chance of getting misdiagnosis back on, just for it the end of the like segment, it looks like she might just, be trying to call us. Just a second. So, so the other thing that uh, we need to think about, and I hope misdiagnosis will be able to answer this for us, is, and I'd be fascinated to know, is what's happened to the price of these drugs in this time? Because I'm not quite sure whether this is now a seller's market oh, great, great, and you great, can great. jack the price up, or whether, so few people are using it, they've had to discount their their drugs. So that, um, If if we have misdiagnosis back, we're just talking about price. Oh, talking about price, yes. Sorry, I just got disconnected
3: before. Um, In terms of price, it wasn't something that was in the research that I had been reading. So I actually don't know what's happening in terms of the market value and if things have been going up or down in that respect. I think the only other thing that I would like to add, I'm not sure if you covered this when I got cut off, is that this study... Didn't include people of um, sort of very disadvantaged backgrounds, maybe who are using intravenous drugs, and that these populations would, you know, by extrapolation, potentially be at really high risk
2: during this period, um, and shouldn't be ignored. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. And uh, um, uh, at an anecdotal level, working in St Kilda, I haven't seen any obvious change. But then we don't actually. To have that much contact with people using intravenous drugs on a regular basis. Uh, I'm probably not the best commentator for it. Um, Miss Diagnosis, um, d- just tell me what do you see happening? Um, I put you on the spot here. Um, <laughs> the 400 or so cases uh, 48 hours ago, only a couple of hundred uh, yesterday. Are we coming out of this second wave? What do you reckon?
3: Oh, Doctor Nick, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dream to comment on that at my level. Um, <laughs> No, I don't don't think we're coming out of it too quickly. I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe people didn't want to get tested on a Friday because they feel like maybe they'll get better over the weekend. You know, sometimes this data can be skewed by days of the week and can be skewed by how many people are being tested, and I don't have that information. But I don't think we're out of the woods just yet, but... I think we're all doing a good job sticking together and, and trying to do the
2: best we can at the moment. I, I think that's a very um, political response. Well done. That Your future is assured by sitting very carefully on the fence and not offering a controversial opinion. Miss um, Diagnosis, thank you so much for your time. I'm so sorry we lost you halfway through. This is, this is the reality of the modern era, isn't it? And it still fascinates me that in 2020, with all our advances in communication, phones still drop out. Um, we're doing telehealth all the time in primary care and it amazes me how often halfway through the call we just lose the person um sometimes i know it's because people are duffers their batteries run out or they press something but uh, the calls just drop out uh, it's the nature of modern telecommunications there we are um we're going to have um uh, In a minute, we're going to be talking to um, someone called Lee Torb about their latest research, and we're going to have some good news about trans health.
4: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au.
2: Hello, now who's that? it's lee here <laughs> oh lee thank you how lovely to hear your voice and sorry about the slunk, slightly clunky start uh but we've got you which is fantastic um lee before we start just tell people who you are
4: uh i'm lee uh, you say their names pronounced and i am a provisional psychologist at the moment uh finishing up my master's and i've just had three papers published And one
2: of them uh, published just 48 hours ago, didn't you? Yes, very fresh. Oh, congratulations. It's always exciting as a scientist and researcher to get that publication out there, isn't it? But um, this is old hat for you. You've done this loads of times before. Yeah, yeah, third time around. So that makes it a pattern. So tell us what this uh, paper was that was published just a couple of days ago. Uh,
4: So it was on the Transpositive Identities Measure. Um, so this research was like two years in the making uh, with with Alex, um, and it's basically a measure that looks at the positive aspects uniquely to being trans, and it's a validated tool that can be used for clinicians
2: and researchers. And so what are we talking about then when we say positive measures? What sort of thing are we measuring?
4: Yeah, uh, so we found five uh, positive uh, measures. So we found uh, authenticity, intimacy, uh, community connection, social justice and insight. And these things are uniquely happen within the trans community uh, as a part of being trans.
2: That's a that's very interesting finding. So go through those again. Authenticity.
4: Yeah, so authenticity is uh, the appreciation and the benefits of being a trans person. Uh, intimacy is... Um, like enhancing your personal relationships when you come out as trans. Um, some people either uh, stick around, some people don't, but um, if you can have closer um, intimate um, relationships, uh, community connection is about um, the connection to the trans community and feeling more connected as a part of being a trans person. Uh, social justice is about um, the commitment and passion to rights of others, and a lot of trans people get involved in activism, even in causes that don't personally affect them. Um, Being part of a minority group uh, makes you more compassionate to other people. Um, And insight, um, I guess, like, uh, that one's about kind of like living, navigating through the world, being treated
2: uh, differently
4: by society, um, being perceived as one gender and then perceived as another by society gives you a lot of
2: insight. And uh, was this showing that for trans people these attributes were more strongly positive than for the non-trans community or was this just within the trans community? This is
4: uniquely
2: trans uniquely
4: for the trans community so the research uh, was qualitative so uh, a few years ago uh, a researcher interviewed a whole bunch of trans people um, and asked them what they liked about being trans and what made you know them proud um, and then they developed this TP this measure and then a few years later me and Alex uh, got a large sample size um, and then we went out and recruited and um, we got 124 trans people uh, of Colour and um, we got a few hundred. We interviewed them. We ran the the um, measure, and uh, we found that you can actually use this this measure. Um,
2: and and you mentioned just now people of colour, and this is one of your previous research areas, isn't it? That you've published in. Tell us about that.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess. Trans people of colour have really been neglected in research. Um, and there hasn't been any research, uh, that's used large sample sizes with trans people of colour. Uh, it's all been small sample sizes with interviews. Um, so me and Alex went out and we recruited, uh, a large, uh, proportion of trans people of colour. Um, and we did some research, um, on growth from adversity, um, just because no one's really kind of looked at the, um, the strengths of being trans, particularly being a trans person of colour. Really looked
2: at it. So tell us about that. You say you went out. Yeah. I, I imagine you went out in an yeah. electronic sense rather than a physical sense, didn't you?
4: Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is uh, DC before COVID um, a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, uh, we recruited online. Um, and and was think, this just uh, in the...
2: Australia or was this uh, international? Uh, this was international.
4: So we got participants from all across the world. Um, we got, I think, over 900, something like that. whoa. And
2: and what, and what yeah. was the finding with this study?
4: Uh, with the uh, Growth from Adversity uh, paper, what we found is when we compared uh, white trans people to trans people of colour, uh, we found that trans people of colour were growing from adversity at higher rates than white trans
2: people. And was that a, a finding that surprised you?
4: Um I guess you never really know what you're going to get with research. Um, and when when we were, me and Alex were looking at, um, you know, recruiting and all that, we didn't really have any expectations what we were going to find. We were just like, let's let's do all these measures. Let's see what we're going to find. Um, and I guess when you think about it, like trans people of colour are forced to, to be resilient, which is um, no, not, not really a choice. Like you're kind of put in a position where there's um, racism and there's transphobia happening um, concurrently at the same time. Um, and, and there's that that force to kind of grow um, but yeah so, so I guess in
2: hindsight that that finding does make sense I, I, you say that resilience I, I would have thought anyone who's trans has to have a bucket load of resilience um, particularly um, going public or coming out as you're talking about so uh, I guess that's not unique to people of color yeah <laughs> now, um, absolutely. So, so, so I wanted to ask you about your personal experience about this if that's okay sure so so um, when we were talking uh, just prior to the show uh, you were telling me that things have changed a lot in uh, what the experience is for trans people in the health community and and, and tr- managing this whole journey so d- could you tell us i mean t- t- um, you don't sound that old <laughs> it can't be that long <laughs> ago that yeah. you were dealing with this yourself yeah,
4: yeah, um, so I'm, I'm 29, I'm clear and use they, them, theirs pronouns. <laughs> And back about 10 years ago, uh, when I was 19 in, in Melbourne, there wasn't really much for trans people in terms of um, support groups. Um, back Back then, we only had a group called Seahorse, um, where it was mostly uh, older people who identified as, as cross-dressers. So there really wasn't anything around for young trans people. So me and a group of uh, young trans people that I was mates with got together and we made
2: gender. So take me back then, so that's only 10 years ago, which for yeah. an old person like me, is just a blink of an eye ago, <laughs> you're saying 2010, um, there was yeah. really very little for younger trans people, and this group called Seahorse was really for more older and transvestite yeah. people, is that correct?
4: Yeah, so that, uh, a lot self-identified as cross that was the only thing that was
2: available. So you set up a separate group because there was nothing for younger people just 10 years ago, tell us about that. Yeah
4: yeah um we all got together um in a room and we we um we asked all of our friends and then and their friends knew their friends and then all of a sudden um yeah, we, we made this group and um, we yeah met monthly. We started meeting monthly, just doing board games, um, and now it's become bigger and better than what we've ever dreamed. Um, now, um, gender are doing like online webinars that um, teach, I guess, the the cis community about like language and things like that. And they're doing bigger and better things that we imagined. I mean, we were just um, we, we were trying to think of what what do we call this group, and you know, we're like why gender and then we're throwing names around and had a website and all that. We were just in the, the forming stage of the group, but um, they've gone on to do bigger and better things for the next generation.
2: I suppose I shouldn't be that surprised that it's it's new, because our uh, um, clinical software only this year, 2020, updated mm-hmm. to allow um, changes in pronouns and uh, more than just a binary gender choice for patients. So that, that's literally only just happened with a software update this year. Uh, your experience then about what's changed in terms of medical treatment options for people? Uh, again, when we were talking before, you're saying that uh, there's been a huge advance over this last 10 years.
4: Absolutely, particularly in Melbourne. Um, so I medically transitioned. Um, I think I had like top surgery when I was about like 21. Um, And and to do that, um, we had to do the real-life test, which is literally what it was called, um, where you had to see the the psychologist and you had to see the two psychiatrists and you had to um, live and dress in the gender that you identify for 12 months. And if you um, succeed in that, then they um, would then approve you. And that's how hard it was back then. Um, And, you know, it's really hard to get hormones and, and surgery um, but now in, in Melbourne, um, we've got informed consent um, where you go into the doctor, you say the doctor, um, and then they explain what hormones will and won't do and what the side effects are. And they, uh, you ask any questions you have, they answer it, and then you sign off and they give you a script. If you uh, understand and consent to it, then, then here you go.
2: So take me back then because I remember this that this was uh, the real life test, which back then seemed like a reasonable thing to say, well, did, if this is such a huge thing that we're going to help you through, we need to know you need to be able to be confident yourself. And so hence yeah. the 12 months and so on. Uh, in retrospect, do you think that was an unreasonable burden to put on people?
4: Um, I think the clinicians at the time were doing what they probably thought was best um, when it was actually quite harmful because a lot of people were just telling this this binary narrative so that they could get the hormones. Um, a lot of people um, didn't get them in the end because they, they didn't... Um, uh, get read as the gender that they were by the clinicians, and it just created this whole gatekeeping kind of barrier of yes, no, you either get what you need or you don't, um and to get what you need, you have to be super masculine or super feminine, um and if you you don't meet that expectation, then then too bad. So I think it was I think it was coming from a place of trying to protect trans people, but it actually harmed um, a lot of trans people.
2: And where do you think we're up to now? I mean, sort of situation is never going to be perfect, but um, uh-huh. are we close to um, managing young people and um, people like yourself who've been through this process, feeling like the community has got this? Where, where are we up to, do you think?
4: Um, I think things are getting better, um, and I think that, um, like, big cities tend to – it tends to be better if you're trans and you live in a big city than if you live rurally. Um, Things are a lot harder. I think that online spaces like YouTube and uh, online trans groups have created a really amazing platform for trans people to connect with each other and meet other people like them. Um, And I think, yeah, online spaces really have been a game changer um, in connecting people.
2: It's it's interesting what you say about rural communities, because I think for some of the city slickers, there's a kind of fantasy that the the Priscilla um, fairy tale (laughs) might be true, that you can wander into a rural community and wear a dress and everybody say, oh, good on you, mate. Um, But is there any truth to that for um, trans people in more rural or remote communities?
4: Um, I don't know as I didn't grow up rurally and I was lucky to grow up in Melbourne being a big city. Um, I have heard from um, people that are trans that live rurally that it is really tough because there isn't access to doctors um, to to give hormones and and approve surgeries and and have um, psych kind of support um, therapy and all of that. Like, there isn't a lot of resources out rurally. Um, I guess with COVID happening, um, a lot of things have gone to telehealth. So um, a lot of clinicians are more... um, more likely to do um, telehealth um, sessions with therapists and and GPs. So I think um, that's one of the things that have come out of COVID um, that is uh, good for, for health.
2: Wouldn't that be a wonderful uh, beneficial side effect of COVID if the trans community had easier access to psychological and physical health um, support because they can now get much more of it by telehealth? That's a a lovely thought to finish with and I I hope there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, Lee, thank you so much for your time. It's great to hear your perspective and congratulations on your research. Thank you. That was Lee Torb, researcher and um, transpositive news, which is just lovely to hear. This is a
4: podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
1: Prudence,
2: dear. Are you there, mm. Prudence?
1: Yes, I'm here, Dr. Nick. Oh, Hi, lovely to TV. hear your voice. Sorry yeah. we couldn't
2: have you on at the same time as we were talking to Lee. I really wanted you to join in that conversation. I... But had you been able to, <laughs> yes. what, what should I have asked Lee that I forgot to? Oh, look, I
1: think, um, I think it's a really interesting um, interview there. And, uh, look, I mean, I, I guess... Um, I would have been interested perhaps to know what sort of um, challenges, what sort of adversities that we're actually seeing growth out of, whether there's whether there are some things that are kind of, uh, that we can perhaps get a better understanding around, you know, how to respond to some of those kind of adverse events and uh, it would be nice to know if they, if, if Leah had any thoughts about what ways, you know, that um, you know, what sort of things trans and gender diverse people face and, um, you know, how the, the non-trans uh, aspects of Parks of society could actually be supportive.:
2: Yes, no very, very good questions and uh, mm. I, look, I look forward to the post-COVID era. Huh. When we can all right. get back into when the back studio <laughs> and have that conversation, wouldn't that be lovely? <laughs> it would be lovely. It would
1: be great to be able to do that. And Absolutely. It's great
2: research. Which, which segues was... very nicely into yeah, what God. you want to talk about today because uh, oh. st- we've all had to be a bit stoic at this time and uh, yeah. stoicism has been piquing your interest. It has, and I mean, I guess you know, just from what we were talking about, adversity
1: and the fact that there seems to be the capacity that humans have—a capacity, this resilience—to grow from adversity. Um, and you know, yeah, like I was thinking just this week, I, I guess, with in Victoria, some many of us going back into lockdown was a great disappointment, and it was like, how are we supposed to cope with this? How are we supposed to deal with this, especially when we probably feel incredibly helpless. And yes, uh, the word stoic, stoicism, you know, came to mind. And I think for me, you know, my initial thoughts around that was, well, you know, yes, it's someone who's resilient, you know, it refers to somebody who's capable of, what, weathering storms of adversity, and, and look, I come from, you know, I come from the UK, so there's that British stiff upper lip <laughs> kind of concept, but I think some of that, though, to me also kind of is a bit about resignation, being resigned to your fate, you know, it's fatalism, and I think it's important that actually we have a look at, have a little bit of a look at, at stoicism, because it's not fatalist, it's not about just giving up and accepting your faith. So, and
2: I yes, came so, so take us back. So yeah, you want to the history? Be, well, people be familiar with the word Stoicism, but yeah, um, the the fact that fact that it is a formal aspect of philosophy and so on. So take take us back. And yeah, tell us about
1: look, that. it does. It goes back well in history, doesn't it? Um, we're going back three hundred years BC, basically, oh. um, and uh, you know, so we are going back to to ancient Greece.
3: Before COVID.
1: Yes, well before COVID and before the Roman Empire as well. And Stoicism. So the first stoic was Zeno, Zeno of Citium, and um, uh, in Athens, he was hanging around in Athens, and he was actually a, um, a merchant, was very successful, and then um, some bad storms came along, but there was some tsunami or whatever, lost everything, lost all his fleet, lost all his goods, all his wealth, um, and he, um, he kind of reflected on that, I think, and spent a lot of time on the streets, and that's the, the, he started sort of talking to people and and the word stoic is derived from a, the Greek word stoa and that means a porch so you know like the entrance or in fact a colonnade on, mm-hmm. on the side of a building and, um, and, and Zeno was unlike Plato and Aristotle who were quite rich and had academies and lyceums for doing their kind of philosophical discourses um, Zeno had nothing so he basically did it on the sidewalk um, and that was it under the porch so that's where stoic comes from, it refers to the location so he did everything from from scratch if you like
2: So Um, so to be a stoic are you required to have lost everything? No but I think it's about understanding um, you know
1: that we all as humans um, experience distress and pain and loss in some forms and but it's, it's more then becomes, well, how do, we, um, how do we deal with that? And I came across an interesting quote from a guy um, called Nasim Taleb, who's a contemporary kind of philosopher and writer, and, you know, who gets written up in things like the New Yorker and, and, and the major you know, um, uh, news uh, outlets. And um, he's got a lot to say about all sorts of things. But he said, a stoic, and I like this in particular, a stoic is someone who transforms fear into prudence.
2: I thought that was a good one. Well, that's lovely, isn't it? But so, <laughs> yeah. what, so what does, us, what would the Stoic philosophy say about how we should handle COVID?
1: Right, what it says. Okay. So I guess what we need to do is there's, there's kind of three steps to this. First of all, you have to have an objective view of, of life. And, and to be pragmatic and kind of accepting of situations because that is, you know, it's like it is what it is. That's the world. Um, and maybe you just need to kind of swallow that up to some degree. Um, we need to have some way of overcoming, you know, this intense sort of fear and also our desires for pleasure and, and becoming something of more balanced, I guess, in our views. And then the really critical bit, I believe, is understanding that there are things that we have control over and that there are things we do not control. And, you know, being able to focus our energies on things that we can control is where, is really the crux, I think, of stoicism, because so many of us waste energy on things that we can't control. So it's a bit like, you know, COVID's here, right? That's, what, that's the way it is. We, we can spend a long time debating whether it's people in China or what. You know the Americans should be doing about it, and all this sort of stuff. But none of that's within my control, or your control, Nick. So really, why are we spending our time and energy and anxiety on on focusing on that when actually we should be working on what can we actually do
2: right now? now that, is, um, that has picked panel beater's interest. He wants to yeah, cut. Giant.
0: Yeah, Prudence, uh, lovely. Um, to have you with us again, and, and I'm, I'm I'm a big um, I take a lot of interest in stoicism for a variety of I reasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm 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 sensing that you're taking us in the CBT direction with your therapy hat on. And Alison Beck, the founders of um, cognitive yeah. behavioural therapy, they um, they point to stoicism as very much uh, a philosophical uh, foundation for CBT yeah. and this idea of self-talk. And um, uh, identifying what is within your domain of control. Uh, Are you making that link?
1: Absolutely. Well, look, there absolutely is that link, and I was going to bring that up because that's really where I came across it first. Was during my my studies in psychotherapy, was that you know they, they um, uh, you know we we got the quotes from Epictetus, um, who was again um, came a bit long later, about 100 AD, um, who um, who sort of basically stated to achieve freedom and happiness, you need to grasp this basic truth: some things in life are under your control, and others are not, and then the teachers went on to say what is in within your control is actually your opinions your aspirations, your desires and things that repel you so yes, that is actually quite true The you know, the basis of cognitive behavioural therapy Um but, yes, I mean, I think, and that's very powerful and very useful. And another way, actually, I can cause, of course, is, you know, the, the serenity prayer of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I think many people may know, even if they don't know, you know, they don't have to have been to Alcoholics Anonymous, but this, you know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. And I think my, my experience, especially when we are, you know, becoming very anxious about things in the world. I've seen over and over again that one the best antidote to to anxiety in many cases is action, is being able to do something. And so it is about really trying to identify the things that you can do and that's where applying your energies. So Less perhaps about trying to change the way you think, but also, you know, not dwelling on those elements which are really beyond your control.
2: And Prudence, I've come across a a concept about this second wave, a thing called what's called the endowment effect, where this is more crushing for people because the first time we were into lockdown, it was just what we all had to do. But then we were given back our freedoms of being able to go to the pub to gather and see people. And then those freedoms were taken away again. Again, almost like in a prison where yeah. you have your, uh, your rights revoked because of bad behavior, and that this second wave is different because we've had something given to us by a government now taken away again. Does that fit for you as a psychologist as being a different experience?
1: Oh, well, absolutely compounded, I think. Yes, I mean, I think we've, many of us would have felt the first lockdown was sort of a bit novel, really, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, I mean, it was a bit of an inconvenience, but wow, well, so we let's could all work go and learn
2: home. French and the piano.
1: Yeah, you know, and those of us who, you know, yeah, sort of go to office works and buy stationery. I mean, there are all sorts of ways of kind of diverting ourselves. But this, this is now a case, yes, perhaps, of understanding first of all that, you know, that um, our 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 distress, if you like, and our misery is nevertheless, you know, um, our response to what's happening in the world. So we have got to somehow, you know, get our heads around that a bit. But still, nevertheless, turn it around. Uh, turn pr- it round to.
0: Sorry to get... Sorry to get you there, Prudence. I've just noticed the time. is really quick. But I just thought I'd throw in um, for uh, people's uh, future pub trivia, they might like to know that Marcus Aurelius was an emperor of Rome um, during the time of the Antonine Plague, which is timely. And uh, Marcus Aurelius, of course, is one of the uh, big three of Stoicism in his book Meditations. Um, And uh, he lost family and, uh, in fact, one child at least. Um, And he gave us the uh, concept of amor fati and memento mori, the first being love love of fate and memento mori being, remember, we must die.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) It's a bit depressing, isn't it? (laughs) But nevertheless, you know, that understanding that, you know, it's about living in the present too. Live now. Do things you can do now you know, don't worry too much about tomorrow because who knows, it may
2: not come. Thank you, Prudence. That's a perfect <laughs> note to finish on. I'm not sure about amorphati. I think that could be misconstrued <laughs> all over the place, but I, I, I love the great. concept of amorphati. Prudence, <laughs> lovely to hear you. Thank you. It's nearly, time for, it's nearly time for us to wrap up and it's just time to say thank you for our wonderful telephone panellists, Miss Diagnosis and Prudence dear, who you just heard. Also, of course, to our special guest, Lee Torb. Uh, and a particular thank you to Panel Beater for all his contributions and keeping this whole thing on the road. I've been Dr. Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember you can check us out on Facebook. You can listen to us anytime with Triple R Radio on Demand, and you can always download the podcast so you can listen to us on the road, in the bath, or anywhere you like.
0: Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.